So anyway, I'm I'm glad that you're healthy. We're healthy. <laughs> For us, it's been um, it's almost a year. Yeah. Because in March in the states, when I was in California, still we were just like this. At least here we can go out a little bit. You know, I have a park here uh, close yes. to my house. But it's difficult, you know, for the kids. That's the the hardest part. I don't know. You have your your kid is still much younger than mine. When they get to an age where they need to socialize, is very sad and difficult. Anyway, we can talk about something no, else. No, 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 no. Uh, I but you're right. I think like my my little one, you know, she also needs to socialize. You know, like you can tell, she's only with with us. And yeah, uh, like over Christmas we visited grandparents, which was possible. Yeah. You know, so but yeah. uh, other than that, yeah. she needs to she needs to have kids around her age. You know, That's and uh, how old is she now? Uh, Sixteen months. Yeah, mine is three. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's like sees only us and her brother yeah and it's not healthy but you know it's the whole world in the same situation i mean more or less you know people ignore it and just do and then they get infected and they go crazy and you know so anyway uh in in the meantime you know we still make music and we still uh, try to get inspired and um I have good feelings about the year besides the pandemic, you know, I think it's, uh, I'm looking forward to just getting more um, acclimatized with Berlin, Mm -hmm. which I haven't seen yet. (laughs) I mean, I've (laughs) seen it, but, you know, we're kind of stuck here, you know, where we are. (laughs) Uh, We're really much looking forward to just getting around town and just enjoying friends and going to, my wife and I can't wait to go out to a restaurant. It's been over (laughs) a year. (laughs) <laughs> yes. Yeah, you know, it's 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 really sad, right? but but at least at least uh, just just even having you around in Berlin, even if you are we're not allowed to be out so much or to socialize so much is, is a real pleasure, pleasure. And um, oh. so and it was just so for the people who are listening, it was uh, uh, again like my my good friend Leonardo Pavkovich, who um, who mentioned to me that you moved uh, to Berlin and that um, we should get in contact. And when we we had a, sh- a meeting with with proper distance here in in our big living room, and uh, <laughs> and it was like instant friendship, I would say. And so, yeah, it was great. so so even even though like I don't really know that much about you yet, I think that's a great great starting point also for today's yeah. conversation which again is completely free yeah. and uh and so let me just start in a like more in a traditional way and okay. just t- tell me a little bit about your beginnings and where you're from okay so i was born in naples italy and um, i was born in a family where my older brother danilo uh, he was my hero because he was like six years older than me you know and he was, uh, and back then, just totally brilliant mind, like a genius, like, you know, he just got three degrees and a musician and very inspiring for me to look at my older brother. And he became a very popular musician. He started, uh, he founded and wrote most of the music on, uh, with this band called Osanna, which was a, a prog a band from the 70s. They were very successful, and them, PFM, and another band called Banco, they were like the big, the three big bands in Italy, doing the Aria, you know, those were the other guys. Anyway, so I started being inspired by him. I started feeling like I should get into music, and, you know, I, 
when I was nine years old, uh, I start I started picking up the guitar um, because it was available. Was the thing available right there? And I started um, just shedding, uh, you know, learning all those records that my brother would br bring in. You know, first it was like rhythm and blues records. You know, uh, he was really much, very much into Wilson Pickett and James Brown and all those things. And then one day he came over and said, came home with this picture. And I said, you know, it was the usual like picture of a black guy playing. And I says, but listen to this. And he put on the record and it started with this, you know, it's like, what? And my hair went like this. And it was like <laughs> that. See, that moment right there, um, I talk to young guys these days, they don't understand how the tsunami of change that that brought in the guitar mm -hmm. world how really was so different than anything else before that. Uh, I mean, I was into the Beatles and you could hear the Rolling Stones, you could hear the distortion thing. But when Jimi Hendrix came out with that sound and how he used and manipulated frequencies, that, mm -hmm. that really, that changed everything for guitar players. Unfortunately for me right now, we're still stuck <laughs> 60 years ago. We're still trying to reproduce that, which is really, the, the really the sad part for me and i'm really trying hard you know with my efforts in music and my latest album too uh how to really push guitar and electric guitar in in a more contemporary um, um more challenging and more more in tune with the times you know way yes than, yeah then it, it's otherwise it's we talked about this before it kind of risks being a a vintage instrument like the saxophone, you know, which has a sound and has a place. But I mean, it's stuck in that thing, you know, and it will not get away. And we're still talking about fuzz pedals and chorus and, and delays, you know, it's like instead of looking at it as a tool that you can take and just use, there's so many great tools that you can use with it and make like you, for example, I heard some of your stuff. It's incredible. The landscapes that you can create, but also, um, the approach to uh, the actual guitar playing we're still stuck with the afro-american blues based yeah. shapes yeah. and forms you know and and mannerism you know it's yes. um, yeah anyway so i started with that i created a band uh prog band called cervello i did my record when i first record when i was uh, 16 and they came out and that for whatever reason is still like uh, one of the most popular prog records in the world, you know, and Japan especially. And then I went on from there. I moved to England uh, in. So, so you went. You went from Naples directly to England. There was no. Yeah, well, stop. I was touring in in Italy, you know, do, just okay. my band. Mm -hmm. And then I started. Um, all these bands, prog bands, were coming from England and other places to Italy. And they were breaking in Italy. They were like, you know, like uh, Van der Graaf Generator was number one song. <laughs> if yeah. you can imagine, in like, <laughs> you know, that's how different radio was back then. <laughs> uh, which is really the only time that actually I stopped listening to it. But anyway, um, uh, then I said, you know, I, I would go and see all these great acts that would come. And I would, I would be totally like in awe of them. And I said, you know, if I'm stuck here in Italy, I will never know really where I could go. You know, mm -hmm. I really want to confront myself and with these guys. I want to see how good I am, you know, if I can. So I decided 
we borrowed money. We created a band called Nova, and we went to London. And mm-hmm. we got we got on the train with all our instruments, and and then we rented a house, and then we started writing songs in this house, and then we started auditioning for reggae companies. You know, we <laughs> we break. And which, which which year was that, Corrado? Seventy five. And you were you were all uh, Italians in the band, or yeah. it was all Italians. Mm-hmm. Um, it was my older brother, and then other people, and then um, basically uh, we did an audition for a brand new label uh, that was created by Clive Davis. It was called Arista. Mm-hmm. And they were looking for acts, so they had, you know, pop acts. The Bay City Rollers was the name of the band, <laughs> mm-hmm. Scottish doing pop stuff. And uh, they heard us, and they said, oh, "Let's give them a shot." So we got signed, and uh, we did four albums for them. Uh, two of them uh, went very well, uh, both in, in the UK because we toured a lot, and we became. Basically, with another band called Brandex, where Phil Collins used to play in. Yeah, uh, we were the two fusion progressive bands in England at the time because then punk exploded. So we were like basically thrown out of the country. <laughs> Nobody. Mm-hmm. Wanted. But we toured for a couple of years. We did a lot of tours with Steve Hillage, uh, Nucleus. Uh, um, that's where actually where I met Alan Osworth. Uh, he was playing. Um, and we, you know, he was young. I was much younger than him, but uh, you know, that was the circuit of musicians touring at that time. So you you met Morris Pert also? Yeah, he played on my records. Yeah. Oh wow! I'm Morris. you know I I just love his playing. Yeah, Morris. <laughs> I haven't seen him since then. Morris played on. Um, I also did a, a session uh, with Morris on uh, on an album by a bass player called John Perry. Uh, produced by Rupert Tyne, who produced one of my albums, and mm-hmm. there was Michael Giles from King Crimson on drums, mm-hmm. Morris on percussions, um, Rupert on keyboards, John Perry on bass. I was the guitar player, and then uh, and then the guy from Caravan. I can't remember his name, but um, so that was great, and we did well. The album went in the charts in the states and. Um, and in England, and then we did this one album where basically we fired the rhythm section. Mm-hmm. And uh, I want to go back. Am I being too long with this? Uh, this no, 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 okay, no, okay. no, no, no. <laughs> I don't want to abuse your time. Um, as we were mixing the first album, we were mixing it at um, Air Studios, which was owned by George Martin. It was on Oxford Street. It was the ver- first version of the uh, studio. Then he moved out. But we were in one studio mixing, and in the other studio, uh, we heard that there was uh, Jeff Beck recording and George Martin producing. And George Martin was my hero. He's, he was like actually my producer model. I really learned a lot from his stuff, and I modeled myself after him, you know, as a producer in the later years. Uh, so while we're mixing, all of a sudden the door opens up and here comes Narada Michael Walton, you know, like my, one of my heroes from the Mahavishnu Orchestra, the drummer. <laughs> oh my God. And he's like, who are you guys? Oh my God, this sounds great. And then he started, initiated the whole thing and we became, and he said, do you want to come and meet Jeff and George? What? <laughs> yeah, come and meet <laughs> Jeff and George. So he dragged me into the studio. They were recording this album called Wired. 
So yeah. uh, he they, he dragged me into the studio and said, "Hey Jeff, this is young young Italian guitar player plays great. You should meet him." So meet Jeff and then meet George Martin. I was like, "Oh my God, George Martin! You know my absolute hero." Mm -hmm. uh, and then we hung out for like three four days. And in those days, there was a, a club in London called the Speakeasy which was the place where all musicians would get together at night. It was a club where you could only be a member and get in, you know, like if you were a member. And what would happen, you, you just show up like around midnight and then there would be a band, the house band, but then everybody would start getting on the on the stage and jam, basically, you know. So you would see Pete Townsend, who actually was a friend of our manager, so he actually really helped us. He donated his uh, studio for us to record Pete. It was very, very gracious. And uh, so Jeff Beck, Eric Clapton, everybody would just stop by and play. So I would just start hanging out there. You know, those were heady days, you know, in those days. It was actually great. I, you know, I had long hair and beard, you know, it was kind of <laughs> post-hippie time. Um, so that uh was the the 75 album then the we toured a lot um we did tours with judas priest and <laughs> and uh what was the name of that band there was a metal band that you can only imagine how we went along <laughs> i mean we would play open i remember we did a, a open air concert in birmingham and we were the opening act and it was judas priest after us and the audience just basically hated us, you know, we were just doing all this, all this crazy stuff. And all of a sudden we start seeing like a barrage of beer bottles and toilet paper just coming on the stage where we're playing. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, so we did all of that and all the clubs, all the pubs all over England, which was great. But we started breaking through, you know, people would come and... And then we got on bigger tours with Steve Village, as I said, with Young Car and Nucleus and uh, all a bunch of other tours. I, I don't remember right now, but um, that brought us to the second record. So we in the studio, the great Trident studio, I don't know if you've ever been there. It's, it was the studio. Uh, mm -hmm. That was the sound, you know, mm -hmm. if you could get. And uh, we fired the rhythm section, basically. And then I called Narada and Percy Jones from Brand X. Mm -hmm. And they came and played, and then Phil Collins played percussions um, on that. Zakir Hussain from Shakti played percussions. Mm -hmm. And that's actually when I met uh, John McLaughlin and we became friends. He was recording with Shakti underneath, the, and I was mixing upstairs. Uh, and that was great. He, um, you know, I was so young back then, and I wanted, all I wanted to be was John McLaughlin, you know? So I was, I remember I was overdubbing a solo with my eyes closed. I was imagining being, and I opened my eyes in the control room, this John McLaughlin with Shakti, and everybody go, yeah. <laughs> oh my God, that was unbelievable. So I had to put the guitar down, <laughs> go into the control room, and apologize for <laughs> my playing. And it was very, John was so great. And, He's always been great, but you know, that was a great, that, what he did, what he told me uh, in those moments really changed me uh, profoundly because I was still like a young guy, I was 20. So he, I, with whatever he said, he acknowledged me as another musician and mm -hmm. I felt that and, and that kind of legitimized my move and everything that I wanted to do, I knew that I could do it. If I started, if I, you know, I kind of felt he kind of passed the torch a little bit, you know, it was like, oh, you know, very complimentary, very gracious, you know. 
so that was a big moment for me. Um, it's it's an it's an amazing story because like what you're, uh, you know, it seems like things happen to you early on in life that for other some other musicians only happen much later, yeah. right? Like uh, so so basically you you you're starting in Italy. You're taking like one basically one step into. Uh, into the void, but then the void presents itself yeah. as some sort of paradise, and and you meet all these people, and you get recognition, and you have the yeah. uh, like the doors are open, right? Yeah, life has been very good to me. I mean, I was what I had, I guess, was that I was very young. I had the passion for it. I mean, I never felt like even in the darkest moments in England when in the first. We basically ran out of money before we got signed. So I ended up just eating snails out of the garden because that's the only thing that I could eat. Mm-hmm. And we had no money for, and it got to a point where, you know, we just, I didn't know where to, what, what else to do with eat. But I never felt, because I was so, I guess, so crazy, I was so young, I never felt I'm going back to Italy. So there was something within me that gave me strength and it said, this is the right place to be, just endure it. And it'll be okay. And I always felt that in my life, and it's always that inner voice always was always right. So they carry me through uh, in the moments of you know when you you like you don't know who you are as a musician, which lasted for a long time in my case. You know, um, you just meet all these heroes. They mm-hmm. you know like I had the fortune not only John but everybody else that I worked with after that. It was like a dream come true. You know. Uh, and I always felt like I had to prove myself because you do, you know, yeah. you know, you do, you do. Have, that's your job. You know, that you have to, whatever language, musical language you're speaking, you have to assert yourself and, and just be solid about that, you know, and, yeah. and just be, um, you know, it just doesn't come in a second. You know, it seemed, I was lucky that I was, I had no, um, ties with anything i just went you know i was i left everything behind i actually from london after a couple of years when i moved to the states i got into a lot of legal problems because uh, at that time uh, in italy you had to go to the army it was mandatory oh, yeah. and i could only stay in england because i was going to basically uh, on paper, I was going to. I graduated from art school, and then I was going to study architecture. So I was giving like one uh, exam per year just to postpone the army deadline. And then after three years that I was in England, when the album started happening in the states, and we decided let's move to the states because we got everybody wants. That's one of the things that John McLaughlin told me. For every musician. A European musician has to go to the States and every American musician has to go to Europe. You know, that phrase kind of locked. I, I, I said, mm-hmm. I, you know, I always wanted to go anyway. But um, so that was um, a difficult part because I didn't know how I was going to get a passport because the passport that I was given at that time was valid only for like six months. Mm-hmm. And you couldn't get a visa to get into the States at that time with that passport. So the band, everything was set up. And we had this crazy manager from the States, this Italo-American guy, who came and said, okay, I'm going to take you guys. Uh, this, the band, you know, after the big success, uh, the charts in the US, you know, we hadn't been, we got to tour the States. Okay, okay, I'm going to take you guys to the States. Uh, 
I can't go. I don't have a visa. I have to be, let me see, let me look at your passport. And those days, the passports were not like today. Mm-hmm. So he looked at it, he took the pen, and he just changed the date on my part. I said, what are you doing? <laughs> said, ah, don't worry, I'll just get it. I'm going, oh, my God, we're going to die. They're going to arrest all of us. So he got a visa for all of us, working visa for the whole band for two years. So oh. we could go. So you can imagine the terror when yeah. I landed at JFK. And they looked at, at the, you know, we give them all all the passports. It was different days back then. You know, the guy actually, the officer looked at the passport and says, oh, are you musicians? You're coming in? Oh, welcome. You know, it was a whole different. Yes. That's, yeah, that was yeah. the reason why people would go to the States back then, you know, mm-hmm. as opposed to now. But uh, so once we were in, I was in. And for two years, I could work, you know. But what happened was that then uh, my passport, even the with the change date that expired and I couldn't renew it. So what happened was that meanwhile in Italy, the army started looking for me. And mm-hmm. so I, I went on, they actually sh- showed up in my mom's house, like 40 of them. They entered the room at 5 a.m. looking for me to arrest me and to take me to, and I wasn't there. So I, I ended up on an, uh, this book, you know, like I didn't know about. In the meantime, I mean, in America, I'm playing with the band, we're touring, da 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 da, and then the band breaks up, and uh, Narada, who had moved to uh, San Francisco from New York, calls me up. I was in Los Angeles at that time, living in Los Angeles. He says, uh, "Hey, man, you know, I just uh, moved to San Francisco. Why don't you come up and just play for a while and see? I want to put a band together." I said, "Okay, you know, I was ready to quit the band, so." I got in a car <laughs> with one suitcase and one guitar and my little boogie amp mm-hmm. and just, <laughs> just went to San Francisco and we played for like three days straight, just guitar and drums. We just played. And at the end of it, Narda says, you know, you should move here. We should put a band together. Let's, I just moved here. I'm teaching drums to make a living, but I got a deal. I want to do a new album. You want to, you want to play? And I said, sure. So I, I quit the band. Moved to San Francisco, I had nowhere to stay. I didn't know what to do. I had no passport, no money, nowhere to stay, just a guitar and a suitcase. Um, but even then, that's not a void I jumped. You know, that's another thing that, that I did. And, um, hey, so let me fill in, fill in the gap for me. So when you were, like you spoke about the second uh, uh, recording, second album in uh, Trident Studios, right? Mm-hmm. And that was released and, yeah. and was a success also. Yeah. And then it was like through meeting like John McLaughlin, for example, saying, okay, you got, you should check out the U.S. You should go yeah. to the U.S. Yeah. And that's when this started. So that was still in the 70s then, right? Yeah, 70. I moved to the States in 77. I see. Okay, okay. So, and then in 78, I moved to San Francisco and okay. I started the band with Narada. Mm-hmm. And basically, Narada and I, we started auditioning musicians and mm-hmm. for the band. So... Then we uh, got Randy Jackson on bass. We got David Sanchez on keyboards. And Mark Crusoe on saxophone. He was from the Yellow Jackets. Mm-hmm. And um, we put this band together. And I always had a thing with production. You know, I always was the one in the studio who uh, had to do stuff. You know, I had to change <laughs> things. You know, I always loved that. I always, I think it's, that's something that is so... Um, especially in recorded music, is so integral with your playing and what you do, the, your sound. 
because it's not about just jamming live. It's fun times, energy and things. In the studio, to me, you're making a movie. And so that movie, you need to get the lighting right. You need to get, you know, and I love that part. To me, that part, because you can create, because let's face it, you know, it's not a natural sounding thing. It's, you're creating things that are not great. Exactly. Do, doable live, you know, it's, yes. a, thing. it's yeah. a thing in itself. So I always loved that aspect. And I was always into learning. And I, you know, I remember I tried and I learned from all the greatest uh, engineers how to splice tape, you know, the two inch tape, all the edits and everything. And I would always look, I would go to the mastering and figure out how, you know, how they're doing it and what's required and why they would change the EQ. To me, I was like, you know, it was all new stuff, but I'm so happy that I got that training there with those people. Mm -hmm. It was it's stuff that you cannot buy these days, you know, it's, yeah. it's just like legendary stuff that back then was the normal thing, mm -hmm. you know, you mm -hmm. had to learn it. I mean, for example, we, uh, they had this hierarchy in the studios where you started as a T-boy mm -hmm. and then you move up as an assistant engineer, then you become an engineer and maybe you become like a producer. So uh, Trident, for example, was one of the two great schools in London. Uh, and uh, the two engineers were Dennis McKay and uh, Ken Scott, who became like a big producer. And below them were all these engineers. They would learn the trade as they were listening and watching and doing this. And I remember we were recording the album and they got a new T-boy. And this guy was so enthusiastic about doing it that he would just bring tea all the time, right? You know, mm -hmm. so we named him, we called him Flood. And that's Flood. Oh, that's Flood, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because you bring so much tea into the... Um, <laughs> it was a funny thing, but that's how, that's how it was, you know? So, yeah. and so anyway, um, uh, the producing thing was always part of my uh, love of doing that. So when I got involved with Narada, Narada, was a great teacher for me in in the arranging part and all the black stuff, which I had really not not an idea because I came from Europe. Mm -hmm. And in fact, that hit me really hard because you can learn the mannerisms on guitar, like I played everything, the Cream played and Jimi Hendrix and whatever, but I really didn't know why that mm -hmm. was. Mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. I had no idea. And then you go to America and find out and live there and get in clubs where, you know, it's just black guys and you don't, you know, like I did a tour and we can talk about this later with Shaka Khan and I, for three months, I just was like in total depression because I just cannot find a way to communicate my guitar playing to that audience. I had no idea. So that was a great training and Narada also taught me a lot about song constructions because I came from Prague. And Brock yeah. was totally free, you know, we had like a song format, but it was like really open. Yeah. Uh, and so when then you get to uh, to that point, you got to make a three minute song. That was something I had no idea how to do it, you know. Uh, and so he was great at teaching me that, allowing me to write stuff like that. But also he was not like me and he's not like me. He's a different guy. He's, he's a more, he's, a, he's like um, a fire, you know, it's like he writes and he plays and but he's not, he cannot sit down and just work on a sound for like two hours, for example, I, I, which I can do and I love doing, you know? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So I was the little bit of the counterbalance that in, in that I would have ideas. 
about the arrangement and the sound of it, and I would suggest it, you know, and he allowed me to do it because he obviously we kind of like we fit in that way. So that was a great training ground for me about production, recording, and also because of the work that we did was so successful, it kind of exploded. We did all the Whitney Houston hits and Aretha Franklin and James Brown and George Michael and uh, you know it just it, it all happened in like in in three years four years we did all those records that was kind of a confirmation after I jumped the void another confirmation that I could do that yes. and I was good at that and it allowed me to just then branch out and be in a product producer myself and then do you know my, my production thing in the future so you guys were basically working as a as a team, as a yeah. production team? We were a band. Yeah. We, Nardo would come in with an idea for a song mm -hmm. and we would get in the studio and we would play that song and I'm not exaggerating, nine hours straight. I would bleed on my guitar because, mm -hmm. and I would just play rhythm. Mm -hmm. No solos, just playing the funk, learning how to play the funk. But what happened was, because I didn't know what the funk was, but I'm funky as a guitar player, I had to find my way of doing it. And I kind of incorporated delays and things and just different motifs, you know, that yeah. I could play. Which later on, I, I was very happy to hear that black musicians kind of copied and they got into their repertoire and, and the arrangement. So, um, see, it's like the they, if you, they throw you into the lion's den and then you have to. <laughs> Or in a swimming pool, and you have to swim, you know, or, and then you find ways to do it, and which was gratifying. It was scary at first because I didn't know how to do it, but um, you just learn how to swim, and and that was a great uh, training thing for me because I think, and this is what I feel, if you want to be a soloist and you want to play, you have to understand rhythm. Without yeah. that understanding, you cannot make any sense of what you do. It's a, it's mm -hmm. just scales. There is no so rhythm allowed me to learn about silence, mm -hmm. uh, the space in between between the notes, the breathing, which actually the space in these days has become the most important part for me <laughs> than actually what you play because it's not what you do, it's what comes before what you do that gives it its meaning, and yeah. so. Uh, how you put the pauses and, and the space and the silence it allows to say something like I'm doing right now. Yeah, yeah. And it's the same thing. So that was a great school. Um, for three years, I learned a lot and it allowed me to just blossom and have confidence in uh, arranging and producing myself. And, and which, which just, just so, because I really don't know, which uh, uh, big name uh, pop artist record came first? That you did together. With Narada? Yeah. Uh, it was uh, Aretha Franklin. Okay. Uh, it was an album called Who's Zooming Who. Yeah, I remember it's that. One song called Freeway of Love, which was a big hit. Mm -hmm. While we were doing that, uh, they uh, asked us to do uh, this, produce this young girl, and they sent us a demo. And Narada said, No, I'm going to rewrite it. So I don't have time, but I'll do this song for you, you know. And uh, we did this one song called "High Will I Know" by Whitney Houston, and that was huge. Yeah. And so then we did the the album coming after that, like uh, "I Wanna Dance with Somebody," you yeah. know those songs. Yeah. Um, yeah. Then we did, you know we did uh, uh, the next 
to Aretha's album. And, you know, the crazy thing is with Aretha, as great as she was, and she's probably the greatest in my mind, you know, of all those, um, she had never had a platinum record. She had gold singles and stuff, and that was the first time that she had And I was like, wow, man, I, I <laughs> it's incredible. I mean, it's, it's like... And then we did uh, a lot. Uh, we did Herbie Hancock, uh, George Benson, and I was just a rhythm guitar player. You know? mm -hmm. <laughs> I couldn't, you know, because he's such a great player and a great singer. My God, he's just probably better singer than a guitar player. It's just incredible. Mm -hmm. um, so many records, probably like 20, 30 records we did uh, in the, the, the span, the span. And, um, and then, I, and then what happened is I got, I felt like I graduated. You know, I said, okay, yeah. now because that wasn't going musically and sound-wise where I wanted to take it to. I wanted to explore more things, and it was kind of like, it was great for Narda because that was the sound, and he continued to be successful. But I had to go. So, were you also touring during that time? Yeah, we did. Uh, we did. Because also with Narda, he put out some solo records and we had some big hits, uh, R&B hits with him. Uh, one was called um, I Should Have Loved You, which is really funky with TM Stevens on bass. That, that was that was fun. <laughs> and uh, and this album called The Dance of Life that I played, that was a fusion song within this R&B record. But for whatever reason, that song is stuck with a lot of people. Uh, it was that song was done like one take. I think we, we rehearsed it for like three, four hours and then we played it. Bob Clear Mountain was uh, co producing and engineering. He was beginning to become a big producer himself. He went on to do Bruce Springsteen, all those guys, you know, just mm -hmm. great engineer. Um, we're all just young chickens, all of us, you know, just <laughs> going crazy. You know, it was at a great time in San Francisco. Um, and then uh, that song, for whatever reason, I mean, you can go, I still get like tons of emails and from people just talking about that solo. And I'm kind of embarrassed about all my solos in general, but that solo, because <laughs> I was like, I didn't know what, you know, that's like, oh God, I wish I could play it these days, you know, <laughs> but that's what it was. And people really seem to like it. So I'm grateful that they do, you know. <laughs> um, so, yeah, and, and I, I don't remember how many albums with it. I mean, all the big names. I know that we did this one song with Aretha and George Michael called, uh, I don't remember, I just remember. Yeah, I, I think I remember that song too, yeah. Oh, you do? It was I do. in I Germany do too. Yeah, yeah. I knew sure. you were waiting for me. That song. Yeah, 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 exactly. And it's funny. <laughs> and so here's the thing with that with that song. That that's that explains what I was telling you earlier. Um, I had just had this one company in San Francisco make me a special graphite guitar. Uh, that were they had a pitch to voltage pickup, and I bought this memory mug, and I had the memory mug kind of uh, customized so that I could go straight into the uh, um, oscillators and I could use it as a MIDI thing. Then sampling came out. So Akai sent me like a stack of 
these monophonic samplers called the S612, whatever they're called, yeah, yeah, which yeah. you loaded with one floppy disk and you only had one sample. So I had one bridge string, so I had six samplers <laughs> stacked in a rack. <laughs> um, and uh, and then I would use the guitar MIDI with that, right, with the pitch to voltage. And so I started going crazy. I started sampling everything, you know, like Peter Gabriel did also, you know. And I sampled my, the wind chimes in my house. And so then I played it, and that's the beginning of this song. So I all those. So I was just going crazy with that. And then it, um, then somebody told me, hey, man, come to um, San Jose. There's a company, a couple of companies that you have to see. So he took me there. And here I go into somebody's garage or something. There was a guy with a little little thing, and it was a computer, and uh, it was a Macintosh. Mm-hmm. Mac, Mac Plus, actually. And he showed me on the screen a waveform. And I just went crazy. I said, okay, that's the future. I have to do so. I went up and bought my Mac Plus and my the biggest hard drive I could get, which was 20 megabytes, and it was this big. Mm-hmm. And it cost me $2,500 just to drive <laughs> for 20 megabytes. So I would take... I uh, basically archived all my samples from my assemblers into the the, uh, the drive, and I would trigger that. Um, I would take it to the sessions. So that's that's what I was doing. I would take my guitar MIDI, uh, my Mac Plus, and the hard drive, and I would just you know play all the stuff. and And then I turned Narda into triggering pads because there was no pads. So I said, you could trigger sounds, you could trigger this. And, and he went, for him, it was like, oh my God, it was like a big <laughs> universe, you know, that, that he could do. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was great days. It was the beginning of everything. It was, uh, and that company actually was Sound Tools, they were called. Yeah, and it yeah. became Pro Tools. And, and then I started, um, uh, because they introduced me to this other company called Opco, that they were just a startup. Uh, they had nothing, but I was so into the Macintosh and the computer that they said, okay, that's a sequencer. So I became the beta uh, tester, one of the beta testers for them. And we wrote, I contributed a small part to Studio Vision, which was the first sequencer which had not only MIDI, but you could have a, a stereo track synced to it. Okay. Mm-hmm. And that was, oh my God, are you kidding me? And so then I started using that manually. So I would record like percussions usually or drums or whatever onto those two tracks stereo. And then I would splice it manually every transient and then I would quantize it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it would take me like, you know, six hours to do like a song, whatever. But the result was finally for the first time, everything in the grid. I mean, it yes, was. Yeah. You know, it was inconceivable before that. Uh, yeah. Just you had to settle with either you spend like three months on a song and then it would, doesn't sound the same, but to just play whatever you want to play and then just fix it, it would retain that thing. I'm talking about pop music, right? So it's not so much applicable to other music, but it was, for me, it was revolutionary. I mean, yeah, it's, yeah. it's, it's interesting because you really uh, mentioned all the things about studio uh, work and production uh, work that I also think is amazing. Like, for example, making a record does not mean it has to be real. It yeah. is a piece of art, but all kind of like you use the studio to create that piece of exactly. art, and it's not about the natural sound or anything like. And and uh, and what is the natural sound? Exactly, it doesn't exist. <laughs> exactly. Right? 
yeah and and then like this idea that you can retain the the spontaneity of a performance and you can fix it that's amazing and i still i still use that a lot i really like when i have people record um i want them to do three takes that's that's yeah. enough it's enough because i don't want the performance to get compressed yeah. by them repeating it over and over again and it's really it's i think that's why music sort of has also become uh maybe even a little um a little how you fresher sounding again after the 80s where in the 80s where it was still you had to kind of like sync up your your tape machine with a uh, with a drum machine and then okay, everything that was, was terrible right? <laughs> yeah well I, I you know i, I remember produce, as a producer just punching in vocals yeah. on a 24 track Oh, man. I'm so happy. I mean, and people go, oh, analog. Oh, come on, man. You should go back to those days where everything was out of tune, out of time. You couldn't fix anything. You couldn't. I mean, it was just not that good. I mean, it was a sound because that was the highest that we could do at that time. Mm -hmm. But it's not, it wasn't like heaven. It was actually really difficult to deal with that. And just, it was a whole different set of skills. But I, I'm glad that we're not there anymore. <laughs> Hey, so then um, about in the in the mid '80s, um, you uh, got back into having an Italian contact, working with Zucchero, right? Yes. How, how so, did how did that come about? Uh, one of the guys in Nova, um, the band that, from England, moved to Italy. He was the sax player. He decided after before he moved back, he came to see how we were working in the studio. He decided that he wanted to be a producer. So he went back to Italy, and because of the army thing, I hadn't, I wasn't really able to go back to Italy for years. Uh, I couldn't stay in the states, and I couldn't go back. Uh, mm -hmm. I could be arrested in both cases. So, but you know, I never, never thought for a second I'm, I'm doing this stuff. It's exciting. I got to be here. You know, it's finally sure. you know, stuff will work itself out, and it does when when your intentions are good. And you know they, it does basically. Mm -hmm. So um, I've I got a green card. Uh, with that, I was able to apply. Uh, basically, I had to ask for forgiveness. To I couldn't go back and to Italy and see my dad. My dad died. I wasn't able to go back to mm -hmm. to see him because I would, I would have been arrested. So uh, years after that, I got forgiven you know pardoned i guess mm -hmm. um and so i took my first trip back to italy after i think it was five years six years since i moved to the states mm -hmm. um and while i was there on vacationing this this guy uh sax player called me i was on you know my favorite part of the world in capri i was enjoying capri for mm -hmm. first time in six years i missed it a lot because i spent all my childhood there so i was enjoying being in capri and this guy uh reaches me and at the hotel he says hey, you know can you uh would you be interested in um, helping me out in recording arranging this guy that uh, that I I'm producing. I said no, I'm not. I'm not interested. I'm on vacation. <laughs> I don't want to do any of this. I just come off just uh, working in the studio 24 hours a day, seven days a week for years. Ah, oh, please, please, please help me out. So I said no. I, he really insisted. He was a friend. So I said okay. 
yeah, put a band together and we'll go to Milan. And uh, so I, I stopped my vacation and just went to Milan. I called um, uh, my band that I had. It was Randy Jackson and this guy called George Perry on drums. Walter Afanasyev, who was the keyboard player at the time, he, he went on to become the producer for Mariah Carey and he wrote all the hits for Mariah Carey and Celine Dion, you know, Titanic, he wrote all that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Just strange how I witnessed all these stories. Yes. You know, he, he was like, he would wait for us outside the studio in San Francisco, begging, can I please play with you guys? You know, and then all of a sudden it's like, you know, I'm talking about tens of millions of dollars, whatever, you know, it's like crazy stuff. Uh, <laughs> good for him. Um, but anyway, so I put this band together really quickly and we went to Milan and, uh, and he introduced me to this guy in the studio, Zucco. He had some songs. They were not arranged. They were not anything. So he said, do something. So like I do with Nara, I would just sit in the studio. I would just think about an arrangement. I would tell the musicians and we did it. And we recorded like these 11, 12 songs in a week. Then I left and I just didn't want to know anything about it. Uh, it just turns out that the album was a moderate success a little bit. So Zucchero called me up like a year and a half after that. Um, says, you know, I have a song and I'm coming to San Francisco. Would you be interested in arranging the song? I said, okay, five time, you know. So he sent me the song. And I remember that I had, um, I just bought this Akai 12 tracks. I don't know if you remember this machine, it used uh, um, Betamax uh, yeah, yeah. sets to record and I had the little mixer so it was a great thing for doing demos you know so yeah. I had it in my house so I did an arrangement of the song and it was in the fashion of the songs that I was working on they were having a lot of success it was funky and it was uh, at that time it was fresh so Zucchero came and he heard the song and he freaked out he just he hated it it's like it's too American man it's, I can't sing this stuff in it I said well, I don't care I mean, you want me to do it? This is what I think is good, you know? Okay, yeah. So, yeah, and I said, I got Narda to play on drums, I got Randy to play on bass, you know? So, um, he didn't want to do it. So I said, fine, you know, we're going to the studio, it was really bugging me. I said, okay, I stopped the car, I said, please get out of the car, and, you know, I'll see you some other time. And I left. And he's like chasing me, oh, no, let's do, you know? <laughs> it was, that was great. <laughs> I just had no no time, but I don't know what this guy is, you know, what he wants from me. He doesn't want to do it, he wants to do it, doesn't want to do it, you know. So anyway, so he, he agreed to do the song, did the song. Then we finished the rest of the record, but I only did the arrangements and played on it. Uh, I got David Sanchez to play on keyboards and da-da-da. And then I left before he did the vocals and uh, mixing. So I just went back to the States. This the album came out, and this one song in particular was a huge hit for him. It was called Respecto, was huge. So here he is calling me like a few months after that, he invited me to Milan. I go to Milan, and I knew something had changed because we couldn't walk in the street anymore. You know, it was like it was the whole different vibe around him, you know. And then uh, Universal, which back then was Polygram. We went into the Polygram offices and the guy, the president who had fought me from the beginning, that this music is too American, he says, yeah, I told you to use Corrado and the Americans mm -hmm. have a different backbeat. And it's like, what? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, what? I mean, 
it's like the slap in your face. It's just, it's just incredible. Anyway, so that became successful. And then um, Zucker asked me, because that was so successful, to produce the next album. I said, well, look, if you want me to be the producer, I just have to take care of not only of the music, but also the vocals and the mixing, because you're kind of like ruining the stuff I'm giving you. So yeah, if yeah. you want me to be the producer, I have to take care of everything. And we did this one album, uh, which was... When it came out, the biggest selling album in the history of Italy at that time, it was, we sold like a million and a half just in Italy. And it was, and then after that, we did what it is to be considered his best album ever called Orange Birra, which went on just to be berserk, you know. Okay. And so that's how it started with Zucchero and we did like 11 albums together. I, I was his musical director for many years on tour. I played with him on tour. Um, we did a lot of great things together. Always fighting him, though, because all the stuff that he's known for, <laughs> he really didn't want to do. <laughs> mm. So that, but I mean, I heard that story for so many producers. You know, it's it's always that way. You know. Yeah, yeah, it is yeah. that way, and that's why why there are producers. You know. Yeah, it's very uncomfortable for me, the artist and the artists. You know, what they don't understand is that the success is not just the artist or the producer, it's just a team that comes together. And if you're lucky enough, that team kind of fits and and you can create some stuff. This is for pop music. You know, it's different than different genres of music. But I mean, if you go into for popular music uh, and the figure of a producer that I had in mind that I patterned myself after was uh, George Martin, which was like a the fifth Beatle, you know, he would come up with actually musical solutions, which I think if you're not a musical producer, I don't know how you can produce because it's like going to a mechanic and the guy is like a dentist, you know, at some point you're going to have musical problems that you need to fix. Yeah. And you have to have some kind of knowledge to fix that. You cannot just go, oh, let's try this and let's try that and see what happens. Yeah, you yeah. know, I've, I've had this uh, situation in the studio quite quite often too, where the band was saying, oh, oh no, this this doesn't work, it doesn't work, like this section doesn't work. And I said, yeah, because the bass player is playing a B instead of a C. Yeah. Right? <laughs> so like this, just this yeah. basic musical knowledge is very important just to find uh, even like the most uh, uh, obvious solutions, right? And then, yeah, so, so you said you did 11 albums with Zucchero, which, is, which seems like a lot. So that must have extended till the mid 90s or even late 90s or something. Or? Uh, yeah, we uh, the last one we did was 2001. Okay, okay. It's time we worked together, and yeah. still was we we were able to make some good albums. It, it got harder and harder because you wanted more and more control, and all the stuff that I was fixing I couldn't fix anymore. He got mm -hmm. more, more like this is my demo and that's how I want it. And now these days he just does demos and puts them out, and which is exactly they sound exactly what they sounded like 40 years ago. But uh, that in the beginning I had power. I could tell him just go home, come back in a couple of weeks. And back then I was, you know, I, I can understand that I might not be. Uh, I'm very pleasant and I'm I always I'm open to collaboration, but I, I I'm not going to sweeten the pill for you. I'm just going to tell you what it is because that's my job. And this is a mistake. Now musically, this is a mistake. It doesn't work according to my opinion, obviously. Mm -hmm. um, and so the solution that I offered him always proved myself in, in their thing. Not that I know everything. I just happened to know that that wasn't right and that sound was good for that. And in my case, also, 
With Zucchero, I basically, uh, and I don't want to brag at all, but I changed the Italian music production because before me, the records were not made that way. You know, it sounded American, but it was not. And the difference that I had compared to American producers was that I had the sound, but also because I was Italian, I could understand the lyrics and I knew why the word needed to be or the music needed to be that way as opposed to just giving you a sound. Because I don't know in Germany, but in Italy, the lyrics have always been like the biggest thing, you know, how you say yeah. it, it's very floral and poetic, and very European, you know. In America, they don't have that that yeah. much. You know? yeah. Yeah. Uh, so I was able to do that. I was able to help the lyrics with the production. Uh, it's, uh, you know, I was always wondering that um, probably late 80s, early 90s, uh, the Italian pop music that also was popular in Germany was uh, like Eros Ramazzotti and uh, Alice maybe and artists like that, just a little bit. But And it was interesting because those uh, producers that did those records, they started including uh american musicians yeah so in a way it feels like a little bit like maybe you you sort of came up with some sort of template for yeah for italian uh, pop music right yeah Which i, I was... introduced the funk to italians <laughs> yes yes, yes. <laughs> no i mean really and that way of doing the records because that's what i was doing at that time you know i learned that and i was i learned from the biggest from the greatest you know so i was just applying what i was learning to that and it felt yeah. natural and it gave it a fresh sound and um back then and which actually they sound pretty good today too after this many years but yeah uh, yeah it became like a school people wanted to have that because it was so successful we were so like that's all they wanted to you know obviously yes. and rightly so so they tried different ways and in their own way they all changed basically and which so what <laughs> which which other uh, production uh projects would you kind of like say uh were very important for you between like mid 80s and like early yeah, 2000s so what happened while i was having a lot of success with zucchero obviously rare companies were calling me up and they wanted me to do stuff and um i got to meet this uh, woman, her name is Caterina Caselli, who was a big pop icon singer in the 60s. She was very successful. She started a record company and the publishing company called Sugar. Sugar. And they had a label. And when I did uh, Zucchero's album Miserere, we got Pavarotti to sing on this one song, right? So when I being the musical director, when we needed to send Pavarotti a demo of the song, we needed to find somebody who could sing the demo. So we were in the studio and uh, we were like, uh, you know, who will we get? So the owner of the studio said, you know, there is a guy that sings piano bar, you know, down here in Modena, that's where we were. And he's got a pretty good, uh, you could sing, uh, you know. I said, okay, we'll bring him along. So he came and he sang the demo greatly, actually better than the final version with Pavarotti. And uh, and this guy was Andrea Bocelli. So, oh, yeah. <laughs> so, so he said, oh, is that good? I said, so we sent him home, you know, and they went home and then we did uh, the record. Uh, in fact, he his demo 
was so good that Pavarotti was kind of intimidated at first. He, didn't, he said, why don't you use his voice and put my name on it? <laughs> <laughs> I said, no, you get you get to sing it. We're coming to you because we want your voice. So that was that's a, an episode all in itself. If you want, <laughs> we can talk about that. What I had to go through to finish that album and Pavarotti and all the money involved and everything and all the craziness. We did that, the album came out, and so we had to go on tour. And so we had to figure out what are we going to do, how are we going to do that song? You know, it's a duet with the, between you and Pavarotti. So we called Andrea to come and, and sing with us. So Andrea came on tour. And while we were on tour, this woman, Caterina Caselli, the owner, she came to see the show. And she liked Andrea so much that she decided to sign him. Mm-hmm. And she signed him. And um then Andrea, because she was so good, she had a German publisher who uh, pitched the song. I don't know anything about this. Maybe you could tell me. But there was a famous German boxer who was retiring, and he had this one last fight. And they decided to use time to song. say goodbye. And they yeah. used that song. Yeah. To and that's how Bocelli was born. That's how, and the song was great and whatever, but that's how the big Bocelli thing came from from Germany, between Italy and Germany. (laughs) Anyway, so this woman called me uh, after this, he called me and and she pitched me this couple of singers that she wanted me to use and I hated both. And I was thinking, how can I tell her I don't don't like it? So I guess she kind of like saw my face and said, she said, you know, have... Last night, this little uh, 18, 17 year old came and we did a video of her singing live with a piano player. Well, you want to watch it? I said, sure, okay. So after 30 seconds, I said, I want to work with her. I knew that. And she was like, really? You want to work with her? But she doesn't have anything. I said, well, send her to me in San Francisco and I'll do some songs and then we'll see. And so she did. She sent this girl. Uh, and she spent six months in San Francisco and we co-wrote the music and I uh, found direction and I produced her and it was, her name is Elisa and she became to be one of the biggest stars in Italy and it was the first time that uh, an Italian artist was singing in, in English and mm-hmm. being successful and she was, because she was legit and I coached her of course, you know, on the pronunciation and everything. So that was very important because that changed a lot of things also. And then, so because of the success, then Katerina asked me, why don't we do a deal where you can just work just for us? <laughs> for, and we, and I actually like the idea because I think that she's great. She has great ears. She's probably one of the two, there's probably two or three people in Italy that really understand music. She knows when, she might not have, know how to uh practically and that's why she needed somebody like me musically how to change and fix but she knows you know and i always uh, respected her and she uh, asked me she made me an offer i couldn't refuse (laughs) so um, i moved from san francisco to milan and lived there for like three years and to discover and produce new talent and we did we found this uh this band that i produce called negramaro and they became huge and they're still big now and I did a whole bunch of records. And then um, at some point in 2006, I had like the three top songs in the charts were all produced by me with three different artists. I had like one, two, three. And it was it was that time, all those productions. I mean, Ligabue was a big name that I produced. Mm-hmm. 
we did this one big concert, uh, 130,000 people. It was just incredible. We did a movie with that. We actually mixed it and at uh, uh, Skywalker Ranch, um, you know, George Lucas place. Yeah. Uh, because I have a lot of friends who work there, musicians, uh, uh, excuse me, engineers who I used to work for and with. And so anyway, just I, I, too many people. I don't want to bo- bother you with that. Oh, no, no. <laughs> I mean, a lot of great uh, people there still. De Gregori was a poet. I mean, just a lot of great guys. And so you, you uh, after your stint uh, or your, your time in Milan, you re- you returned back to San Francisco. Yeah, I returned to San Francisco. I couldn't stand living in Milan. Mm-hmm. Just couldn't do it. So I went back. Uh, and so I was working between uh, uh, San Francisco and Italy again, you know, just for a 15 hour flight, <laughs> like 20 times a year. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then uh, it just uh, it got more and more like I really wanted to do back to where I started from, which is making my own music. And yeah. just um, I, it felt like, especially after my son was born, it felt like I was done with that. I was done. And life has been great. I was very fortunate. I enjoyed the uh, uh, the anomaly that we experienced in the business for like 30, 40 years. And then things started changing and uh, I really became more and more um, not disappointed, but not interested in popular music. I felt like I had to do it. And then at some point you have to get on and move on and something you can't be doing. I just don't feel like I don't want to be doing the same stuff forever. You know, I just did that very successfully. It's time to do something else after 30 years of that, you know. So that's what I made a decision, and I started uh, concentrating on my writing and my guitar playing, and and so I came up with a couple of records that I did experimenting, and I'm enjoying that very much. Now it's all, um, I'm really geared, especially this year, I, I want to get into a whole different thing with videos and um especially because we're forced to do it. But I'm, I'm actually enjoying that. Uh, the, the new yeah. things that I'm learning. And I think it's part of uh, the new stuff that musicians have to do, you know, which is not what the the old pattern of, okay, I'm going to record tour and make another record, you know, that, you know. So I see technology helping all of us uh, tremendously in doing, uh, we have to find a way to do it properly though, because I don't, I'm not really happy with what I see with things like done remotely. Yeah. Yeah. It's just, it's not until, and I think there's good products that are coming out this year that will allow like real time um, mm-hmm. recording. Mm-hmm. That is going to be a big change. Uh, that is going to allow us to make music remotely like it used to be in the studio, you know, like just um, properly, I think, you know. Yes. If you it's, want interactive music, you know. Yes, yes. So let's let's uh, jump to back to the guitar. And, yeah. Uh, like what you. <laughs> so uh, one one hour about your. I'm uh, sorry. Per- no, 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 no. This, this is exactly kind of like what I <laughs> what I want. You know? a lot of editing, Marcus. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so uh, you said something what I that I find very important, and again, it's it's so crazy to me how much we're on the same wavelength there. 
like the guitar should not be uh, idiomatic for the blues or the pentatonic scale or whatever uh, history it carries, right? And uh, before the electric guitar, there was uh, obviously, uh, you know, dec uh, not decades, uh, centuries of <laughs> of, uh, of guitar history already, where um, um, there was also music around that was not idiomatic necessarily for the instruments. And like people were pushing, uh, you know, what you could actually play on a guitar. And it was about like, and I think like also there we're on the wave, same wavelength where it was about the melody and that the melody not being dictated by the instrument, but the melody being dictated purely by music. Right. Need. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And um, and I really very much resonate with that to actually uh, see the guitar as as like a uh, uh, and like the pitches on the guitar as just like the uh, an empty canvas where you as a player should be able to pick the notes that make the melody, let's say, rather than the positions of the notes dictating what you come up with. And and that has been sort of like what I've been working on all my life. So uh, and um, so how how do you how do you work on acquiring uh, that freedom to come up with these beautiful melodies? Well, um, so first of all, I have to say that the guitar probably is one of the hardest instruments to play in a in a new way, uh, or like trying to push the boundaries of, of the instrument, because the guitar differently than a keyboard, you can play the same note in different parts of the neck, and they all have different sounds. So I, you know, I'm okay. I'm a sound guy, so I hear the difference. But it's just like the voice; you can sing the same note with different inflections, and you can yeah. do that with the guitar. So in a way, it's a great advantage that the instrument has, but also a limitation if you're limited to not knowing where to put your hands on the fretboard. So having said that, I always felt that, especially after my experience with the, you know, with black music and once I acquired the memes necessary for me to communicate with black audiences, and then I understood what that was, okay. To me, then the path became to free myself of all of that just how to not be enslaved by what we think the instrument is like. I mean, if you look at any videos that you see, all these kids, and that's the saddest part for me, it's all the same stuff, and they all fall into the... Because the guitar, compared to the keyboard, can give you immediate satisfaction with just distortion and two notes. You can get that... Yeah, the harmonics, and it resonates, you can turn it up, and, and you feel the adrenaline, so that it's... In a way, it's very um, like pop music is really uh, teenage music, you know, and it's a teenage instrument seen that way, you know, mm -hmm. if, if you look at it that way, because it requires very little knowledge, you can get satisfaction right away and you can feel like you're doing something. And then if you throw yourself into the entertainment or the um, the appearance of popular um, contexts, then you can do something with that. Obviously, after a while, you're going to die because if you don't know what you're doing, you cannot get any better. And so then you're going to be, somebody else is going to take your place. So, but if you look at it from a musician point of view, I just dabbed into a lot of different genres. Um, 
jazz, prog. Uh, you know, I grew up with prog. You know, blues. Uh, you know, I, I learned when I was twelve. I knew all of Eric Clapton's solos, and I told him the first time I met him. I said, "Look, when I was twelve, I knew all your solos." And he's like, "Oh, I don't know. You're so beyond what I, I just want to be BB King." He said, "You know, <laughs> <laughs> he was very." I did the whole tour with him all over Europe. It was a great time. Um, but I kind of knew Eric Clapton, I knew the cream, I thought I knew the blues. Then I figured out that the blues came out of this um, not feeling well from mm -hmm. a different part of the society that was happening in America. And they had nothing, they just had this couple of instruments with two strings on it. And they had to talk about this, you know, not not being right you know uh -huh. that is the blues to me it's not how you play all the notes you play it's just that feeling that yeah. those guys found a way to transmit through the guitar or some broken instrument with two strings on it it was adopted by other great musicians and turned into jazz or turned into you know gospel and it was all it all comes from that i figured out that for me i'm not afro-american I wasn't born in America, so my blues is European. And so I went back into the way the Europeans have a way of describing that. In my case, it's, you know, it's very close to melodic Neapolitan scale bass because that's where I'm from. So I relate to that. It's close to almost like Middle Eastern music, you know, some of the mm -hmm. um, sounds of it. Mm -hmm. And so once I decided that, I decided, okay, I have to free myself from everything that I know, all the way that I look at, and and you know, uh, I have, I will be eternally grateful to Alan Oldsworth for that because he showed me as an example how you can look at the guitar in a different way, and I said, okay, he's onto something, you know, mm -hmm. and, and I just never copied what he did, but I started thinking myself, and and you know, Alan told me something also that when we talk or just get together or message or see each other. He said, um, you know, my dad told me that there's nothing, how do you put it? There's nothing worth learning that can be taught. And he's right. So you cannot mm -hmm. learn anything from somebody telling you how to do it. You have to figure it out yourself. You have to. So he was, to me, he was like a really good example of how you figure out things. And you, if you have the time and you have your mind, then, so I decided to explore myself. Okay, he's doing his thing. How can I just look at the guitar in a different way and just um, come up with different approaches to it? And the first thing that was a requirement for me was always melody. I had to have some kind of melodic content that has to say something that I felt it was I had some kind of uh, strategy, melodic strategy to it, or trajectory, you know, that I had to have something that I can be just, you know, I mean, I could do that all day long. It doesn't mean anything. <laughs> you know? So, and then freeing myself from uh, when to use technique, because technique is just not an end in itself. It's just a way for you to just apply to the guitar, just like my technique for talking to you is English. I learned English and I use this technique in communicating with you, and the same on the guitar. So I started looking at the guitar differently, and I found that there, I started having problems with the sound of it. I just didn't like distortion anymore. Mm -hmm. I found that distortion, when I did this one album called Aham, where it's all guitar-based, everything that you hear from drums, it was a great research. It took me like um, seven years to do it. 
I can only, you know, I don't want to tell you what it took me to make guitar sound like cymbals, you know, that's just, but okay. it was a good thing because I had to figure out that, okay, the guitar is not just that. And I found out that actually distortion is very useful. It's like clay to me, yeah. but not used in the way that it's been used. You use this distortion in all different forms to give you harmonics and you can extrapolate things from there and just use it, right? To just give colors. Yes. And use pedals and you, uh, I'm not a big fan of little pedals. I, I, I try to make stuff myself, you know, just for, but um, so that was one of the, another requirement. So the first requirement was melodic approach. The other one was the sound of it. And then the technique, how to apply technique can be interesting and just not repeat the modes and the way that how people approach because I was never really good at modes, you know, like mm -hmm. people told me, oh, you can play. I see a lot of people is like, I don't know what this, I don't relate to that. I don't, to me, yeah. it's just, if you look at the neck, it's the same notes all over. Yeah. It's not, and people like to organize it, the shapes and this goes over that chord and this goes over that. That's fine for them. I can never relate to that. So I had to find a way to play through changes in a way that uh, I could relate to it. Mm -hmm. And so I found, um, I'm, I'm still finding my way of uh, dealing with that and just uh, and what I found is that in the end um, you come up with your own voice it's like mm -hmm. so I might have obviously influences or things that remind you of like a lot of times they tell me oh you sound like Holsworth but that's only because I'm not playing the blues or uh, I'm playing the mm -hmm. God or something mm -hmm. I'm not trying to be like I can never be like Alan Holsworth there's only one Alan Holsworth you know yeah. I'm not interested in doing that but I'm interested in what he uh, showed us that we could do, just like go in your own path and come up with something that is different, right? So I don't know if I answered your question, but no, yeah. <laughs> no, I I agree. Like like one of the um, uh, questions I ask or I ask my students to ask themselves when they when they uh, make music is I want them to get get inspired by the question, what if like so, for example, like if you if you're playing and you're not interested in finding out what the that one note sounds yeah. like, then you can stop making music right away. It's 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 got you have to have that curiosity to figure out okay what like you don't have to know what it sounds like. It's not about that, but you have to be excited about wanting to find out, and and that is where the motivation and the drive comes from to to explore. Like, what if I play the B over the C minor chord now? Like, what if I don't need to know what the what the mode is called or whatever harmonic no, minor no. it is or whatever? It's you not need, about that. It's about yeah. the curiosity of exploring these sounds. What you need to do is to figure out a system that works for you. Because if you like a sound, then you have to know how to reach and get that sound again if you need to. Yeah. So. That and it doesn't have to be. You can don't have to call them scales. You can call them anything you want. You know, you can. You don't have to call them like. In fact, I'm I'm at a loss sometimes when people come and they have all these major charts with all these chords. I say I have no. Just play me the stuff, man. I'll just play. You know, just play me the stuff, and I'll try and find my way through it. I mean, and then you can analyze. I mean, I have a, one of the guys that I signed that I'm producing is an incredible guitar player actually. Uh, I think you would like him a lot. His name is Filippo Bertibaglia. And I actually forced him into playing just acoustic guitar because on acoustic, he's just unbelievable. Mm -hmm. He's so great at transcribing everything that I do and putting in a name like he loves, you know, <laughs> writing. I have no idea what it is, okay? 
Is that what I played really? I just played, you know, I just mm-hmm. play. I, mm-hmm. I have um I mean of course I have some knowledge, you know, what I mean. It's not like I'm not don't know anything, but I just stopped worrying about this goes over this and this plays over that and that. Yep. And then and that's the prison to me. That is the prison. It's like you learn um phrases that it's already been said and it's uh, it's like memes you know you use them one after the other to yeah. sound like something but it's not you know you have to come up with your own you know that's yeah. what i want to say yeah exactly I, and that's 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 what I, what like the term that i use for that is like it needs to be uh, like gestural, like like the whole body is like like it's the uh, it's not just the voice, it's also the uh, and you can you don't have to know which notes you're playing in order to do uh, you don't need you know you, that's not important really in that moment. So, if you study enough, naturally your brain goes into it knows where to put yeah kind of knows it's yeah. like you don't have to think about okay over this chord i'll play this and this is the line and the phrases that we learn and you just play other people's phrases you know yeah. uh, those are things that you do in the beginning and you learn okay okay that goes over that and you know usually uh and then your brain um your subconscious has a way of remembering that and you kind of know where to put your fingers when when your mood but you have to be able to let to jump into the void, you know, yes. on the guitar, which is always difficult. Uh, I hate everything I play because of that, because I never know <laughs> what I play. If it's going to be good or bad, it's mostly bad most of the time. <laughs> so, <laughs> but but only for you, only bad for you. Only for me, of course. <laughs> but that, you know, that's the ultimate judge for me. <laughs> yeah. So when you when you had your your long uh, like three decades of uh, being a producer, like almost exclusively, right? How was your relationship with the guitar? I mean, you said that you did you did actually play on those productions, so that's obviously obviously. But um, I'm I'm talking more about like the intimate relationship that you have with an instrument, where it's not necessarily being applied to something specific. You know, like where where it's just just the pure uh, one-on-one feedback loop with the instrument. Um, has that that always been present, or was that a time in your yeah. life where that was sort of on the sort of on the back burner a little bit? Yeah, I didn't have. Uh, to me, it was just a tool that I was using to finish the production. You know, I needed, and in fact, even the solos. Uh, going back to the discipline of that, it was a great school because it, it kind of I I like solos that say something. I, I think of them, um, especially when solos used to be in, in pop songs, now they don't have them anymore. But back then, it had to be a song within a song. Uh, so I yeah. always felt that that solo had to be a service to that song and to the artist. And so, but always pushing the limits, you know, always not being uh, predictable. So I always tried to find ways of inserting <laughs> memes in there that would just go, what? What was that? You know, that. Because that to me is important. It's just like a good song. You know, it has to take you and take you. Oh, what was that? You know, so I was trying to do this. So that's the guitar for me. Uh, And in a way, I paid the price because I didn't devote uh, time to the instrument as much as I could have. But I don't regret it because to me, it's all one thing. You know, I have time now. I've been shedding on the instrument and I finally can feel that I have my own voice. I mean, that to me was the most important thing. 
uh, that you listen to two or three notes and you know, okay, that's that guitar player. And yes. that's what I really want. And, yeah. and that's what I've been working on. And I'm beginning to feel good about that. I'm beginning to feel like, okay, I have my sound, I have my phrasing, I have my thing, you know, which I could never figure out before because you, you just, you're learning, you know, you're learning. So, uh, and a lot of people, incredible guitar players, I couldn't tell them apart, like, if you blindfolded me, you know, yes. they all sound the same to me. And that's the problem that I wanted to avoid. You know? Yeah. No, I, I agree that the, um, you, just a few months ago, you sent me the, the, the mixes of your new album, which has now been released or it, on Bandcamp it it's out, right? The end of February. Uh, end of February. Okay. Um, yeah, just and you you sent me mixes, and I I completely uh, kind of agree that there you have a voice, you have found a voice there that's uh, first of all like sonically, uh, like just the, the 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 sound of each note, let's say, but there's also something about the construction, let's say, of your of your lines, which I find is very unique. So, um, but maybe like in a more general sense, tell us a little bit about that album and the new album and also uh what really um what you accomplished guitaristically there well uh it is my hope um it, it, you know i'm i'm never happy with what i do it's always been my problem you know ever so and i don't listen <laughs> well to you're that. italian right it's an it's an italian thing is it really I think so. Okay. <laughs> I I just um, I can never listen to the stuff that I record or whatever. I just I have to go uh, years have to go by before I can listen to it, and then I go okay, that was okay. I feel a lot of uh, uh, oh, you know, like that. <laughs> That's all you could do at that time, you know. But you know, so I learned how to deal with that part of myself. But strangely enough this album is the first time where i'm actually quite happy with it i've been listening to it after it's been finished which is a good sign because i never ever do that and i don't get tired of it i think two things are from that one is that this time i did not want to do uh, any album for any other reason than just playing the music that i was feeling at this time i had no aspirations to be a success has no aspiration to be a guitar player album. It just it just the music that I wanted to do. That brought me to the fact that I concentrated on the composition uh, and the desire to bring the electric guitar into a modern thing. So I had the adoption of um, electronic rhythm section mm -hmm. pushed me towards a sound that I think it was very challenging because you know one thing is to do. Uh, electronica. The other thing is to do fusion or prog. When you start to combine those, they kind of like they all want to be leaders, and that was a very difficult thing. I had no, there's no points of reference that I know of that has that package together. So it was difficult in not musically so much, but sound wise to mix it and to make it sound um, credible. Mm -hmm. So that was, uh, I'm, I'm proud of that accomplishment. I think it's a great. Uh, thing in that respect and as far as the guitar it is the um, finally the fruition of all these years of working on this one sound that I had in mind years ago that started with the Ham album where I wanted to do everything with the guitar 
and I wanted to be more expressive. I wanted to have more control over that. So I came up with this pedal that is hopefully this year we'll see the light of day, depending on what COVID does. But I have it as a as a firmware in this um, amplifier that I use, and it freed me from the guitar. It's just the first time that I could sing. I can sing, I could play one note and be happy about it because it means something as opposed to, you know, or ding, ding, ding. So I have to play more notes because I have to feel the vo- Now mm-hmm. I just go, that. And yeah, yeah, I've yeah. never before. I think that a lot of guitar players are going to love this pedal. It, it just it gives you, it's just like a saxophone. It just gives you, or a violin, you know? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So that really uh, allowed me to phrase some of the melodic parts, but also the the, the shredding parts of the, the album in a way that um, uh, I think it's kind of interesting and unusual for me. And uh, I'm very happy about that. I think that's why I'm very satisfied. I can listen to the album because I listen to it and it feels like it's music. It's not a guitar record you know which yes. i don't want to have i want to make music mm-hmm. so i happen to play the guitar better than the keyboards and i want to use that <laughs> so that's that's uh, this album and you know um i'm i'm being reminded uh, of uh, you saying that you uh, met jeff back early on in your career and now listening to that album like the maybe the most uh, the only a name that came to my mind was Jeff Beck, actually, and not just not because of the uh, the music, uh, yeah. not just well, because of the music, but because of the the the. I think there's a record that David Torn produced for Jeff Beck a, a while ago, maybe ten, twenty years ago. I can't remember what it was called, but there was like like it's 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 kind of like in that vein. So it's like a it's like it's like a painting painting with sound. Yeah. With uh, incredible production quality and and with with what you just described about the compositions and the 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 the, 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 the uh, guitar actually being a voice yeah. sort of like like a singing voice yeah. um, and it's it's incredible I really like I I had heard like the uh, when you first sent it to me I heard the first three tracks and I thought wow this is unbelievable I really thought that you Thank know you. yeah yeah Thanks. so so. I, uh, Jeff Jeff is probably of all those guys is my favorite guitar player because to me he found a way you can hear two notes and you say that's Jeff Beck mm-hmm. uh, and but he has the blues but it's not predictable he's mm-hmm. melodic mm-hmm. and he uses distortion and the guitar in a way that it's it's him and that's what you want you want yeah. the guitar to sound the instrument to be just a vehicle for you to express yourself in a way that it's just you you know you don't have you don't want to be a, a slave of an instrument that has uh, um, an image and so you have to play that you know and then everybody sounds the same so he's he's actually i have a lot of respect for jeff beck yeah i i think he found a way uh, I think that he would probably would love this pedal too. <laughs> mm-hmm. He found a way with you know with the swells and the things and and to do it in such a great graceful way. I think. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Without being, I mean, what it does, it's just not only unique, but it's pretty difficult. It's all different technique, and that's technique. Technique is also how to use the the electronic part of your instrument. It's not just the notes, you yeah. know. 
so he does it in his own way and it's fantastic it's yeah. very difficult yeah yeah i mean for sure it's in a it, with an electric instrument the the extension of the instrument uh, the yeah. parts of the electron electric the electric part of it obviously is part of the instrument and uh it's, yeah, it's really those 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 players who kind of embrace that part yeah. that also have a chance to develop that voice uh because obviously, like you always have your way of playing and your kind of vibrato, but then, like, what does it go through? Like, how is it being amplified? And that really makes all the difference. Right. It's like a crazy horse that you have to tame because it's. Not, <laughs> I mean, it is. I mean, it's a very difficult instrument to tame, especially with electronic stuff. I mean, you have to really shed and use and manipulate. I think you have to have a mind for it because a lot of people don't have a mind. Just just plug into things and they think. That that's gonna make the sound, you know. Yeah. Um, no, I mean it's it's lit literally something you need to tame. It's like what people forget that like you have six strings, right? And like you said, it's it's one of it's very difficult instrument to play because you play one note and five other strings vibrate if you don't control them somehow. And that's that's also why. And I I mention him all the time, but that's why Mike Oldfield is like my hero as a guitar player because like he he has the technique where he stops all the strings. And he uses one finger per string, you know, to just to just to make sure everything is muted and gets this like he who was using like four stages of distortion yeah. uh, to get that sound, that endless sustain and stuff. And you yeah. can only do that when you tame the horse, as you say, like mm -hmm. and and um, and yeah, that's it's. Uh, when you when you're looking at uh, like the uh, music education, free music education, you can find on on YouTube now. Uh, even even the guys who are very good, you know, very rarely speak about these aspects of, yeah, of the mastering an instrument. Yeah. Yes, the sound exactly. <laughs> I mean, yeah. that's and that's why they sound awful. <laughs> yes. No, I mean seriously. I mean, you could, you know, they just they use distortion to cover up stuff, basically. Yeah. And the, all the mistakes that have become all the dirt, mm -hmm. the crud, you know, that has become the guitar sound. That's just dirt. You know, you can, you can use the sound, and if you clean it up, then you really know you've, you're not really that good because the yeah. sound in itself is bad, and you're not expressing. Yeah. And I always had a problem with that in my playing. I mean, I always try to fix that. I, I'm I'm getting there, but I want to compliment you because your your stuff is fantastic. Also, I listen. I'm not familiar with everything that you did, but um, because I'm a big lover and I do have all side of me that does ambient and drone music myself, and so I have a big passion for that too. At some point, I'm going to release an album just of that kind of stuff. And you mentioned David Thorne, who is my dear friend, and I loved him. I mean. And how he was able to play, like even with uh, David Sylvian and yes, with, uh, yes. with the lexicon, he was doing all yes. the loops and yes. so uh, yeah, I saw him uh, two years ago at the Nam show. Um, I wish him the best because yeah, he he's really one of the great guys. He is well. He he also he also lives in Woodstock, like where I spent or used to spend a lot of time uh, before COVID, right? And yeah, no, he's a, he's a wonderful guy. Okay, my friend. So I hope that people will check out your album, obviously. And yeah, uh, please do. <laughs> it's, it's, now we talked about it enough. Yes, to exactly. No, I will. I, uh, you know, this this interview will be out uh, on YouTube and also on 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 Bandcamp as audio. Like, um, 
And yes, I'm going to post the links um, along with it, obviously. Thank you. So Do a good editing, Marcus. Take out all the bad stuff I said. No, I'm, I'm going to I'm going to leave all the bad stuff in. No, We're no. <laughs> I'm going to embarrass myself. Thank you, thank you yeah. for your time. No, it was it was a real pleasure, and I hope that we get to meet soon. And uh, once once your album is out, I hope we can also start recording something together. That would be yeah, wonderful. absolutely. Looking forward to that. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, you know, it's maybe in the next couple of months we'll be able to see each other or something. I I really hope so. Yeah. I mean, I mean, okay. I. Yeah. Okay, my friend. So. Uh, we we'll talk I, soon. I let my family back into the apartment now. <laughs> Me too. Thank okay, you. Bye. Ciao, bye. ciao. 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 Ciao.